I love that song, and I love singing it together as a church family. And one of the, one of the particular lines in that song, you left the throne and chose the cross, laid down your life to rescue us. In that lyric, you have an echo of Philippians 2. You have an echo of Jesus Christ, the one who, as Paul says, in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but rather he made himself nothing, and he took on the very nature of a servant. He came down for us. Therefore, God exalted will exalt him to the highest place, and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that is the, that is the foundation. And some of you walk in and you, you make those connections right away. Others of you are just trying to figure it out. And wherever you are in that journey, I am absolutely excited that you're here this morning because I believe God has something. God has something for each one of us this morning. Now, when we talk about faith... You know, part of, the, the, part of what's in that song is also this line, I've witnessed it and I'm confident I'll see it again and again. There's two ways of seeing, two ways of having faith. And I, I like to think of it this way. There's the faith in the windshield and there's the faith in the rearview mirror. There's the rearview mirror where I look back and I see God's faithfulness. I see what he's done. Then there's the faith... As I look ahead, and maybe it's dark, maybe it's confusing, maybe I feel lost, but I believe, based on who God is and what he's done, that he will work. Faith in the rear view, for me, is easier than faith in the windshield. But the more I can see what God's done, the greater my faith can be as I look ahead. We're in a series in the book of Judges. And we've been looking at this idea of faith in the darkness. What does that look like to have faith in times that can be confusing, times that can be a little bit chaotic, but how do we have faith in the middle of all this? And as we think about this witnessing of faith, this expression of our faith, we have both the declaration of God's goodness, of his character. When I reference Philippians 2 and I talk about the very character of Jesus that we get from the word, there is a theological understanding of that. Who God is. We don't just guess at what that is, we look at his word for that. Then there's the how do I attach that to my, my personal walk with Jesus, my personal expression of my faith, the way that I see on a daily basis. Now, we're in the book of Judges, which in some ways, uh, if you're a student of the Bible, it's kind of like a dark closet in the house of the Bible. There's some things that are kind of dark. It's a violent book. It can be a confusing book. But there are treasures in it that are going to point to Jesus as we can see. And I want to remind you of a couple reasons why we're taking a few weeks in the book of Judges. The first, as I've mentioned, this is, this is a step of faith of seeing God at work 
in some times that can be dark and confusing. Last week I said for all of the technology in our world that just seems to be exponentially growing, the human heart has not changed. For all of those changes, for all of those advances, the human heart has not changed. And then we have the challenge of obedience in a culture of compromise. That's the book of Judges, and in many ways, that is our time today. I left you last week with a personal challenge. I said very simply, do the next hard right thing. Anybody do their next hard right thing last week? A few of you did? Okay. Now, here's what I did. I went home, and uh, you ever have a hard home improvement project? Ever help somebody with a hard home improvement project? Well, my, my daughter and my son-in-law, um, we started this deck. I, some of you are like, good night. You started that deck like last summer. Well, we had my granddaughter's two-year-old birthday party yesterday. So we're all the way up to the deadline on getting that deck done. So my, my, my son-in-law and my dad were out there together, and we've got this... And, We've got some skills, but we're not like professional. So we've got this angled piece on the rail that it took us like six hours to get this thing done. And what went through my mind is, Jesus, why did you give me the sermon illustration after the message? But then I got to thinking, and it's like, you know what? If I really think that was my next hard right thing to do, Maybe I ought to have a bigger perspective on the kingdom and what God's calling me to do. And maybe it's just me, but sometimes we can get caught up in our own little worlds and confine our next hard right things to do to home improvement projects. And, and I can make a good case for that. I'm not saying it's the wrong thing. I'm saying it's a good thing, but is it an ultimate thing? If you're like me, sometimes you can get caught up in things that are not ultimate things. And sometimes I've heard there's pride and idolatry in those things. So my challenge this morning, as you think about your hard right thing to do, is your hard right in the right fight? Is your hard right in the right fight? I guarantee you the folks that are going to camp next week are in the right fight. They are in the right fight. They are in a battle I believe the evil one wants the hearts and minds of the next generation. It's a tough world. And what a joy it is as a church to send these people out and fight the good fight and help these kids and encourage them. That's exciting to me. I hope it is to you as we send them out and pray for them in their journey. Well, we're in Judges 5 this week, and I want to return to the story of the judge Deborah and her right hand Barak. And we're going to look at a victory song. We're going to look at a song that's both a celebration of God's hand of victory and also a challenge to us today. So let me take you to Judges 5, verse 1, and let me pray for us. Lord, as we enter into your word, we're thankful that it's true. I pray that my words are clear, that they're helpful, and above all, they bring you glory 
and honor. Burn off whatever doesn't do those things. Holy Spirit, be our teacher this morning. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. I want to take you to Judges 5, verse 1. This is a theological reflection, and if you were here last week, this of, of the history of what happened. There is both the history of what happens in our daily lives, and then there's the theological reflection. Where do we see God's hand at work as we reflect on our lives? That can happen at the macro level. That can happen on the daily acts and details of our lives because God cares about each and every detail of our lives and he calls us to the right fights. So Judges 5.1, on that day, Deborah and Barak, son of Abinoam, sang this song. Now, there's a difference between singing a song and reading an essay. A song comes from the heart. A song is an outpouring of emotion, of praise, of what is in your heart. So there's going to be this victory song of praise. We have Deborah, the prophet, the judge, the leader. We're in this kind of weird time between the conquest of the promised land and the the, the time of the kings. We're in this vicious sin cycle where there'll be a pattern of sin, a judge will come in, there'll be decent times for a minute, the judge will die, and it will continue to spiral down and down. And it's a downward progression. We see this bright spot in the life of Deborah. We have Deborah, we have Barak, her general, who will lead them into battle. Deborah, the leader, Barak, leading into battle. We have Jael, who will take up the tent peg, and take out the evil king, Sisera. That's coming. We'll review those events. You're going to get some confusing names. Most of those names represent tribes in the nation of Israel that originated from sons of Jacob who became Israel. So here we go. Some theological questions we're going to address this morning. The first point is this. God is in charge of the fight. God is in charge of the fight. I want to take you to verse 2. When the princes in Israel take the lead, when the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. Hear this, you kings. Listen, you rulers. I, even I, will sing to the Lord. I will praise the Lord, the God of Israel, in song. When you, Lord, went out from Seir, when you marched from the land of Edom, The earth shook, the heavens poured, the clouds poured down water, the mountains quaked before the Lord, the one of Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. Who is in charge? God is in charge. Deborah, Barak, Jael, the armies, God is working through, but God is ultimately in charge. We see the rain and the storm. You might recall that Sisera had 900 chariots. He had technological superiority. But if you have a chariot and it rains and it pours, what happens to those wheels of a chariot? They get stuck. So you see God's hand of intervention. Sometimes the opposition that we can see can appear clear 
than God at work that we can't yet see. So we see this tremendous example of faith. We see that God is in charge of the fight. Now, if God is sovereign, if God is truly in charge, then I can worship God freely. I can worship God freely and I am freed from thinking too highly of my own accomplishments and despairing too much about my own failures because God is in charge. So the question that that leads us to consider this morning is, whom do you worship? Whom do you give ultimate worth to? This evening, excited about our worship night, awe and wonder is the theme. Do you have a sense of awe and wonder towards God? Is God too small in your vision? Or is God, all? there's always more. There's always more to wonder about. There's always more that is, fills us with a sense of awe. The second theological principle that this song is going to communicate to us is God invites his people to fight with him and for him. To fight side by side with him and to fight for his kingdom and his cause. Notice this. Take you to verse 6. In the days of Shamgar, son of Enoch, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned. Travelers took to winding paths. Villagers in Israel would not fight. They held back until I, Deborah, arose, until I rose a mother in Israel. God chose new leaders. When war came to the city gates, but not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. God is calling Deborah to lead, to wake up, to go at the highest levels of leadership. And then verse 9, my heart is with Israel's princes, with the willing volunteers among the people. Praise the Lord. You who ride on white donkeys, sitting on your saddle blankets, and you who walk along the road, consider the voice of the singers at the watering places. They recite the victories of the Lord, the victories of his villagers in Israel. We have a picture here of those riding on white horses. The rich, those who are walking, the poor, fighting, worshiping together. What a picture of the kingdom. Highest leaders all the way down, all the way down the hierarchy. They are fighting as one for God's kingdom. What a picture. Jump down to verse 15. In the districts of Reuben, though, there was much searching of heart. Why did you stay among the sheep pens to hear the whistling for the flocks? In the districts of Reuben, there was much searching of heart. Gilead stayed behind the Jordan. And Dan, why did he linger by the ships? Asher remained on the coast and stayed in his coves. Some ignore the call to fight. Some stayed behind. Some, they look out. No, baby, no, I'm not going to join in this fight. I will stay behind. The people of Zebulun risked their very lives. So did Naphtali on the terrace fields. Kings came, they fought. The kings of Canaan fought. At Tanakh, by the waters of Megiddo, they took no plunder of silver. From the heavens, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The river Kishon swept them away. The age-old river, the river Kishon, march on, my soul, be strong. Then thundered the horses' hooves, galloping. Galloping go his mighty steeds. 
Curse Marah, said the angel of the Lord, curse its people bitterly, because they did not come to help the Lord, to help the Lord against the mighty. So what we see very clearly, some respond and say, yes, I will obey the call. Wherever I am on the hierarchy, yes, I will obey the call. Some will not. There's a blessing, there's a praise, there's a condemnation for those who do not. So the simple question is, how have you responded to God's call to fight? Now, let me give an Old Testament judge's warning, pause. The Bible is for you, but it is not written directly to you. We have, a, we have some work to do to talk about what that fight is, how Jesus changes the fight, because I don't think we're all walking out of here with a sword ready to chop off some heads. That's not, there's a particular time in redemptive history where God calls his people to do that. We are in a different time. The third theological principle, God's fight is a good fight. God's fight is a good fight. Let me take you to verse 24. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Haber the Kenite, most blessed of tent-dwelling women. He asked for water and she gave him milk. In a bowl fit for nobles, she brought him curdled milk. Her hand reached for the tent peg, her right hand for the workman's hammer. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. At her feet he sank, he fell. There he lay. At her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. What do you do with this? This is violent. This is not a metaphorical deal here. This is real. The tent went through, or the temple, the tent peg went through the temple. It happened. We've got to wrestle with these questions a little bit. It's a celebration of victory over evil. How do we know? This is where we got to do a little teaching here. Go on. Verse 28. Through the window peered Sisera's mother. Again, Sisera is the evil king. Behind the lattice she cried out, Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why is the clatter of his chariots delayed? The wisest of her ladies answer her. Indeed, she keeps on saying to herself, Are they not finding and dividing the spoils? A woman or two for each man. Colorful garments as plunder for Sisera. Colorful garments embroidered, highly embroidered garments for my neck. All this is plunder. Pause for a moment. What is the nature of Sisera and his kingdom? It is a depraved There's child sacrifice. There's a level of moral depravity. It's even difficult for us even to get there. But what do you notice here? The mother of Sisera is saying, why is he delayed? Because he's probably taken a a woman or two for each man. Now, if you look at that word, it actually means womb. I don't have to draw you a picture on that. 
what would typically go on after war if you're in Sisera's army and you defeat somebody? You take the women and you rape them. That's a brutal culture. That's an evil, depraved place. So we see a God of justice doing justice through J.L., through Deborah. We see the irony of the evil king dying at the hands of a woman. It's powerful the way God can work. It's hard for us sometimes to stomach this level of violence, but we've got to see it at a deeper level. Now the question Well, let me first of all take you to verse 31. So may all your enemies perish, Lord, but may all who love you be like the sun when it rises in its strength. Then the land had peace 40 years. So the question is, if God's fight is a good fight, and that's one of the principles that we've got to keep in mind, God's character has not changed. He is unchanging in his character. The good fight has always been the good fight. But how does Jesus change the fight? How does Jesus change the fight? The personal question is, are you confident you're in the right fight? And then how does Jesus change the fight? When you think about Deborah, the mother of Israel... Take a hard right in your Bible. Go all the way to the first chapter of Luke. A thousand years later. And you're going to see another song, another mother, another celebration of God's character and God's goodness. We see Mary. Mary has just left, been with Elizabeth. Elizabeth's going to say, blessed Mary are you among women. Mary will celebrate the news that she will give birth to the Christ child. Young Mary, she says, My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And then Luke 1.51, He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones but has lifted up the humble. Mary sees herself in this line. She's looking back. (laughs) You were faithful then through the nation of Israel, and now Mary is in this position. And she sees God at work. She sees her part in the unfolding story. I can't imagine what was truly going on through her mind, but we see this this continuity of the story. But then we also see a departure because the rescue that many at that time would have envisioned would look differently. If you remember the night when Jesus was arrested and the Roman soldiers were there, and you remember Peter perhaps, Peter, the the bold one, 
takes out a sword, cuts off the ear of one of the Roman soldiers. I wonder, did, 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 did Peter look at this and say, I want to be like Zebulun, I want to be like Naphtali, I want to be one who stands up and fights. And what does Jesus do? Heals the man. Heals the man. He said, oh, you, Peter, you don't understand. You, you don't understand the real fight that is ahead. You don't understand what I will do. Peter, put away your sword. You see, to defeat the power of sin and death once and for all, Jesus would have to bear the sword. Jesus would have to receive the nails. Jesus is the one who would go to the Roman cross to pay the penalty for our sins. He would rise. He would ultimately break the spiraling cycle of sin and death. So today we live in this in-between times, in between the already and the not yet. Jesus has already, on the cross, paid the penalty for your sin, my sin, our sin, past, present, and future. He has won the battle. Amen? He has won that battle. There's nothing you and I have to do to secure that victory. But he has not yet returned. So we live in this mess in the middle where God uses us, God calls us into the battle, and even though final victory has been determined in a way that makes my little brain hurt, he still uses us in powerful ways to advance his kingdom. This is how the Apostle Paul describes that battle. If you're in Pastor Dean's spiritual warfare class, you'll, you'll get plenty of this. But Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The fight we fight is a spiritual battle. And how do we fight? Paul tells us that we have a message of reconciliation that we are to bring. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says this, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. What fuels your fight? What fuels my fight? What what fuels it all? There is a love that compels us, a love that Jesus demonstrated for us on the cross, and a love that we are to have even for our enemies because we too, when did God save us, if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus? While we were yet sinners, while we were, are, were opposed to God. That's the gospel. That's the good news that he's rescued us. 
He didn't save us because we were better than most or in the top half of the curve. Why we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So it's, it's, we can love because he first loved us. That's a love that compels us to reach out. Verse 14, or I'm sorry, verse seven, uh, 19. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. That's how God invites us to join the battle. We are ambassadors. We are his representatives. That means my identity is fully in Christ. In a world with all kinds of questions about identity, above all else, as followers of Jesus, our identity is in Christ. That's who we are. That's who we are. And out of that identity, we can represent Christ. So my identity is in Christ, and I am for my community. I am for even my enemies. I can be opposed. I can battle the forces of evil, and I can be for those who are far from God, those who even think differently than me. And if that's the work we want to be engaged in, and as we think about bridges into our community, as we think about all our kids are going through, as we think about opportunities in family ministry, opportunities with these kids going to camp, as we think about the mental health challenges of our time, as we think about all those who have walked away from church, from God, and are, I, I don't buy it anymore, how do we make a difference with those, all of those people? How do we provide truly the hope of Jesus? We can do that as ambassadors, representing him as if God were making his appeal through us. Through us. That's what we're called to do. So when we put this together, we have a reason to worship. We have a reason to enter the battle. We have a reason to represent Christ. Amen? That's our call. Now, I want to invite us to the communion table now. If you're a follower of Jesus, and I, I, I want you to think about it this way, this week. I want to go back to the Apostle Peter for just a moment. Peter had to put away that sword. And Peter, it's interesting, in, his, in one of his letters, he, he would quote Isaiah 53 and remind his audience that by his stripes, by his wounds, by Jesus' wounds, we are healed. We are healed. We are made right with God. And we come to the communion table, that's what we remember. We remember that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he gathered his disciples in the upper room. And after giving thanks, he, he broke the bread and gave it to him and said, this is my body given for you. Take, eat, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and said, this, this cup represents my blood. Blood shed for the forgiveness of sins, the blood of the new covenant. So just as we receive the bread, we receive the cup. And when we do this, not only do we proclaim the Lord's death, 
We look to the cross, we remember its significance, but we look forward to his resurrection. So if you're a follower of Jesus, doesn't mean you've got it all figured out, but you've taken that step of faith. The table is open. So after I pray, the table is open and you can receive. Father, we thank you that you've given us Jesus, and and Jesus, it's by your stripes, your wounds, that we are healed. And we simply pause and say, thank you. Thank you that we didn't have to earn it. And yet you call us to follow. You call us to join the battle. You call us to, to love others, to be compelled by your love. A love that we see so clearly demonstrated on the cross. So Holy Spirit, work in us. Encourage us, convict us, whatever you need to do in these moments as we prepare our hearts to receive. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Come now, the table is open.